I'm Laura, and uh, just fairly new into town with Owen, my husband, serving the postgrad community here at the church. And thank you so much for your warm welcome. Um, it's wonderful to be back in this wonderful church family. And so we're looking today at those words of Jesus in Luke 6. They're wonderful, aren't they? Challenging, reframing words for us this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we, we love your word. It is life to us. And oh, how we need it. And oh, how we need you. And oh, how we love you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, change us this morning. Speak to us. We need you. Amen. And so these verses then from Luke chapter 6 are often called the Beatitudes, and Matthew's gospel has a slightly longer version of them. And in Luke here, Jesus sets up these two hugely contrasting experiences of life, lack versus plenty, sorrow versus celebration, being mocked versus being praised, blessing and woe. And here's the unexpected thing about Luke chapter 6, about the Beatitudes. The unexpected thing is that Jesus lines up the blessing with those in that first group who experience lack, who know sorrow and rejection. About 16 years ago, I went on a once-in-a-lifetime holiday with my mum and dad to New York. Um, I was 18, I was just about to start university, and uh, we hadn't really grown up going abroad on holiday, so this was a massive treat. We bought all of the travel guides and looked at all the pictures and planned this four-day stint that we were going to have in the Big Apple. And what's more, this was sort of my parents' way of lifting my spirits a bit, because my then-boyfriend at the time, Owen, who's now my husband, was studying in, uh, for a whole semester in Montreal in Canada, and I wasn't going to see him for four months. And so mum, dad, and I, on our second day in New York, we woke up really, really early, and we headed to a place near Fifth Avenue to get pancakes for breakfast, because this was the day that my parents had planned for us to go up the Empire State Building. And so we're walking um, along the road, and I'm thinking, hmm, this fog is pretty bad. We can't even see the end of the names of the streets, let alone see across the whole of New York City. But my parents sort of seemed kind of oblivious to this, and we carried on, and we having our pancakes, and we were right opposite the Empire State Building, and we saw them in the entrance put up this massive sign that said, today, zero visibility, redirect your tickets. And my parents didn't really say anything, and, and I didn't want to be the one to spoil the vibe, but I did say, uh, Mum, Dad, can't, can't I see the sign? <laughs> it says zero visibility. I don't think we should go today. Why don't we redirect our tickets? But they were like, oh, no, 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 no. It'll be fine. Let's just carry on anyway. And so we're in the lift of the Empire State Building, you know, making our way through the first chunk of those 102 stories. And I'm thinking, this is futile. This is such a waste of our money and of our time. 
Um, I wasn't the only one thinking that, because at story 50 and story 85, we were stopped by members of staff in the Empire State Building saying, um, excuse me, sir, madam, did you not see the sign? It says zero visibility. You won't be able to see a thing. But my parents were adamant to proceed. And we made it to the top, and we could not see a thing, apart from a handful of other crazy people like us um, who had decided to trek to the top of the Empire State Building on zero visibility day. Five minutes passed, 10 minutes passed, and sort of we periodically are peering over the edge just into cloud, couldn't see a thing. And then suddenly, behind me, I hear this voice I recognize saying, hi there, Laura. And I spun around, and it was Owen, who had trekked through the night on a coach from Montreal to meet me on top of the Empire State Building. I know, it's a pretty cheesy story. And before, <laughs> before you get the impression that Owen is just, you know, all kinds of wonderful, um, I don't think that he would, he would describe himself as being particularly romantic at all. Or, or maybe it's just that this spectacular effort 16 years ago has ticked that box for life. <laughs> Suddenly, you see, on top of the building, it all made sense. Yes, it was... Zero visibility, yes, it seemed to be futile, but little did I know, my parents and Owen had a plan, and actually waiting for me at the top of the Empire State Building was someone whose presence exceeded all my expectations of the trip to New York City. And fortunately, my geography is not that great. The thought hadn't even crossed my mind that New York might be within reach of Owen in Montreal. And do you know what else happened, actually? Um, although it wasn't forecast, after about 45 minutes of us waiting at the top, suddenly the cloud just lifted, and we could see everything right across the city. The first thing I want to say from this passage in Luke this morning is that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, is an unexpected kingdom. It's an unexpected kingdom. Verse 21, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Verse 22, blessed are you who are excluded. This is upside down, isn't it? It cuts against the way of the world, the way of the system, which is much more you're blessed if you can do X, Y, Z, or if you have X, Y, Z. There's the haves in life, and there's the have-nots, and it's much better to be in the haves. You know, the Beatitudes, these words of Jesus here, they come just off the back of Jesus spending his time. We see this in verses 17 to 19. Jesus spending his time with the needy, with those who, for all sorts of reasons, were the have-nots. And I wonder whether those have-it-alls watched on perplexed. This was not what they expected. And verse 20 tells us that specifically, Jesus looks at his disciples to speak these words. He looks at his disciples, those who would know poverty, rejection, and even be martyred on account of following him, the Son of Man. Just like the Old Testament prophets before them who spoke God's word were rejected. I, I really wonder if upstream, the disciples expected something really different from what it meant to be in the in-crowd of the Messiah of Israel. 
I reckon Peter certainly expected something different. Remember him on the Mount of Transfiguration? He loves it when Moses and Elijah are there, and it's all this splendid moment of Jesus' transfiguration. And I mean, James and John, they're the same. They're the ones who fancy themselves at the best seats in the house, at the right side of the kingdom of Jesus. You know, as lads, these disciples would have heard the story of the coming of the Messiah, and I think they would have expected the overthrow of the Roman Empire in a way which was obviously impressive to those looking on. And then here comes Jesus of Nazareth, born in humble Bethlehem, riding into Jerusalem, absolutely as Israel's king, but not on a noble steed, on a donkey. And here is Jesus showing himself absolutely to be the king of the Jews and indeed the king of the whole world, but as he is crucified. And he's the one who hangs out with those on the margins, the tax collectors, those people disrespect and disregard the ones that everyone calls the sinners. And all the way through his ministry, through his actions and his words and his humility, I think he must have perplexed onlookers thinking, this isn't what we expected. And he'd gather in his disciples and he'd say to them, guys, this is the unexpected way of my kingdom. This is the unexpected way of the kingdom of God. And it would be tough for these disciples in the, in the weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. It would be, I think, at points a little bit like climbing the stories of life in the kingdom of God and thinking, it's zero visibility up there. This is all a little bit futile. Why don't we just redirect our tickets to another day? And then in the fog, they'd hear his voice. They'd call to mind his voice, speaking these words. You're blessed. Blessed are you whose lives are shaped and marked out and no fulfillment in my unexpected kingdom. It's upside down, but it's true. Did anyone else, I wonder, um, get given one of these back in the day? A few heads nodding there. Yep, a few hands raised. Um, I think it was some government scheme in the 90s and uh, early 2000s to help us progress in life. You know, give us a special place to put our 10-meter swimming certificate so that we could pop it out in that all-important interview to get that job we've always wanted. Um, I grew up in um, Wales, so ours has even got a little bit of Welsh at the bottom here in gold, just giving us maybe that cultural edge. I don't know. Um, our son was six two days ago, and when he was about three, we were in a supermarket, and a lady at the till caught him looking up at an advert picture of a farmer with potatoes. And she said to him, Ooh, do you want to be a farmer when you grow up? And he replied to her, no. And she said, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he looked at her and he said, Superman. <laughs> Maybe you're here today and in some ways you're a little bit like Superman. You know, your life has panned out even better than you expected. You know, the pages of your record of achievement file are full. And you hear words like this from Luke 6, from Jesus, and you're not quite sure what to do with them. Well, maybe you're here today and your record of achievement file is more zero visibility. The pages are a bit empty. Or actually, maybe they are full 
but with things that you'd rather forget. Is Jesus then, in these verses, saying that poverty in and of itself is a good thing? Well, no, that doesn't resonate with the rest of the witness of Scripture, which shows God's desire and his action to seek to alleviate poverty. And what about the strength of verses 24 to 26, you know, with all those woes? Woe to you who laugh. I mean, as followers of Jesus, is it inherently wrong for us to laugh or to feast? Well, just a chapter later, in chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus makes this self-reference as the Son of Man who came celebrating. And we see him, don't we, throughout the Gospels, participating in and enjoying Jewish festivals. And should we then, verse 26, make sure that we live our lives in such a way that nobody is ever able to speak well of us? Well, no, it's a good thing, isn't it, that those around us might be able to describe us as kind, gentle, and patient. Now, what's going on here is that Jesus is speaking right into our aspirations for life. What do we believe and where do we believe fullness of life is truly to be found? Now, what is our ultimate fulfillment about? What about our efforts to flourish? What are we living for? What are we storing up our treasures? What about the trajectory that we've set for our lives or the trajectory that we find ourselves caught up in? What about as Christian parents, the trajectory we set for our children? What about those within our friends, within our church community? What trajectory are we encouraging them in? How tightly do we hold on to our record of achievement file? And when the times are tough, when life is hard, where do we ultimately believe life can be found? And you see Jesus' words here in Luke 6. They upend our expectations. And his blessing challenges what the system around us might merit and value. Jesus, you see, doesn't say blessed are those who've clambered up their way to the top of the system. No, Jesus says, blessed are those who find themselves having fallen out the bottom and are in need of the grace of God. And you see, that is all of us, actually, isn't it? Regardless of our experiences, our achievements, our social standing, our background, we all find ourselves this morning in need of Jesus in need of his grace, in need of his love, in need of being caught in his arms of love and grace. And you see, the thing that matters most in the world, the most beautiful, the most true, the most real thing, is not something that we can achieve, is not something we can earn, is not something that we can collect the little file of certificates for. The biggest truth is that we are loved by our Father in heaven. And he longs to catch us in his arms of grace. This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel of the good news of God's grace to us. That we are all sinners. And it is only through Jesus, his death and his resurrection, that we are saved. This is the gospel. And we see throughout the New Testament that it's often those who more obviously have less who grab a hold of this with two hands because they seem to understand their need in a way that the lofty and the mighty and the successful perhaps don't. And so maybe we feel, yes, we we know this. We know this grace. We've encountered Jesus. We know this wonderful grace of the love of our Father. But 
It's not just grace which saves us once upon a time back then. It's grace which sanctifies us and grace which sustains us in our journey with Jesus daily. We are those who come constantly dependent and in need of him, not able to bring anything to the table but trusting in his goodness, trusting in his faithfulness. You see, his unexpected kingdom is marked by grace, not merit. It's about receiving his life rather than mapping out our own. It's about our need and his provision. It's about our weakness and his strength. It's about our lack and his love. It's about him and his goodness and us grabbing a hold of the offer of life that he has for us. And so he speaks, Jesus here, unexpected words of comfort to the broken, hear them this morning. And he speaks words of unexpected challenge to the comfortable. I was chatting with a friend who's part of our church family uh, here at St. Aldate's the other day, whose life as a follower of Jesus has meant really tough choices. Faithfulness to God has meant decisions and his life panning out in a way which was not, I think, what he would have expected. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Laura, sometimes life in the kingdom of Jesus can really feel like lack. Maybe you know that feeling this morning. You know, Jesus' words here in Luke 6, they reframe what lack really is and what fullness is and when it's coming. Because what keeps this friend of mine going? What keeps him going in all of the sacrifices that he's knowing and experiencing in the here and now? Well, what keeps him going is he knows what lies ahead. That's what spurs him on. He lives with an expectancy of the coming fullness of the kingdom of Jesus. It's that bigger, longer perspective. Because you see, not only firstly is Jesus's kingdom unexpected, but secondly, the kingdom of Jesus is an invitation to live with expectancy. To live with expectancy. To know what and rather who lies before us. Who is ahead of us. You know, the truth of the matter is that Jesus' words here in Luke 6 only make sense if this life isn't all that there is. You know, otherwise, we might as well just uh, fill ourselves up with stuff other than him. And it's the second half of these six verses which invite us to live with kingdom expectancy. You shall be satisfied, it says. You shall laugh. Stored up for you in heaven is unending joy. It's that song, isn't it, that St. Aldate's Worship wrote last December. Creation is longing. His kingdom is coming. So hold on. Hold on. We're invited to live then with kingdom expectancy, waiting for Christ's return and him ushering in that new creation, the promise of revelation at the end of the Bible, where he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Trusting that even when it seems futile, even when it seems like zero visibility, even when the world looks on and advises us that we might as well redirect our tickets, we know that actually faithfulness to Jesus is ultimately where it's at. And then the flip side of that, the warning that we have in these woe verses to the haves is that we, we can't take any of the stuff of this life with us. 
You know, if we focus on getting the stuff of the world, then we already have all we can get. And it will, says Jesus, in verses 24 to 26, it will run out. And the truth is, is that even if we know that as followers of Jesus, sometimes in our mindset, we can slip into looking for our satisfaction and our ultimate fulfillment in other places through our choices, even the things that we find ourselves praying for. And the original language here, the Greek of that word woe, is actually better translated as alas. By that I mean that this isn't Jesus with some angry, vindictive judgment. This is his warning, birthed out of care and compassion and concern. Alas, he says, alas, he is mourning the plight of those who've redirected their ticket and have missed what is for them at the top. Alas, he says, and we hear in his words as well, I think, this righteous anger at the winners who continue to rig the system and turn a blind eye to the plight of the needy. And so this morning, with our eye, as people who live in kingdom expectancy, with our eye on that coming kingdom, the full healing of our circumstances might be something we wait for in the life to come. But right here in the midst of the here and now, who is with us? Jesus. He is with us. It is him speaking these words here in these verses to the disciples, pronouncing this blessing of the unexpected kingdom, providing them with these promises so they can live with kingdom expectancy. He is right there in their midst. And so we're not supposed to just live with kingdom expectancy, waiting one day and and sort of just, just holding on in some vague hope. No, we are to live expectant to know him more now expectant for that day to come, but expectant that through the power of his Holy Spirit, his presence in our hearts and our lives, changing and transforming us, we might know him closer now, for he is with us. He is the one who is with us. When our file is full, when our file is empty, he is with us. And so this morning, where do you know lack in your life? Where is there lack? And then another question, where do you know fullness? Where is the fullness? Is it wrong for us as followers of Jesus to have certificates in our record of achievement files or to become, I don't know, excellent at quantum physics? That one was never an option for me. Is it, is it wrong to enjoy celebratory meals or take holidays or laugh with friends or, I don't know, whatever it might be, play sport? Or No, God gives us good gifts. But this passage reminds us, doesn't it, that these material things can't ultimately fulfill us. Our record of achievement could never make us truly blessed. You see, this is it in a nutshell. These are the words of Jesus to us this morning. Blessing isn't something we achieve. We don't achieve this. We don't strive our way or work our way to get this. Jesus pronounces this in his grace. It's an announcement of his grace and his goodness to those who would grab a hold of him and take a hold of his grace this morning. And he says, in fact, woe, woe to those who achieve a lot because sometimes our hands are so full with our big fat record of achievement file and was so concerned, like I was with the Empire State Building, about visibility, 
that we fail to have the eyes of faith, which remind us that there's so much more going on. And so in your fullness this morning, and many of us, don't we, we have so much, thank God for his provision, but let it lead you to be radically generous, to give away, to act in every way in the grace of God. Hold on to your accolades lightly. Work hard, but don't be defined by it. Hold your fullness, all the good gifts, all of them. Hold your fullness before him, surrender it all to him, knowing that it's all grace. Hold your fullness before him and invite him into your lack. For knowing him, you have everything. In Psalm 73 in the Old Testament, and maybe the band want to come back up now, it's a really interesting psalm which actually kind of captures quite a lot of this sort of two ways to live, with lack, with plenty, the sort of inversion that we see going on here in Luke 6 of the blessing that Jesus pronounces. And the psalmist, what's going on is he's looking on at the prosperity of others around him, and he's sort of envious, and he's wishing that things were like that for him. And then it's like he hears this voice that he recognizes behind him, and the fog lifts, and there's clarity And he says this in Psalm 73, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, and he's speaking of the Lord here. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, here's that kingdom expectancy. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. And then he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth have nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This morning, may God realign and reframe where we think it's at, where we know the ultimate blessing to be. May we bring him our lack, may we bring him our fullness, and may we know that in him and in him alone, There is true blessing, true fulfillment, true satisfaction. May God be the strength of our heart. He is our portion forever. It's unexpected, his kingdom, but it's so good. May we be those who live with kingdom expectancy for what is to come and for his presence tangibly and really with us today. Amen.